Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 16, as we follow along with today's lesson. A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by her soothsaying. A girl who was possessed by an evil spirit, and she was a channeler, that is, the evil spirit would speak through her, giving guidance, direction to people, telling fortunes, And those men that controlled her were making a lot of money off of her supernatural powers, though demonic powers. And the same began to follow Paul and us. And she cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. One of Satan's tactics to hinder the work of God is to become involved in the work of God. And one of the great curses of the church has been its compromise with the world. Satan, first of all, tried to destroy the church by a direct frontal assault. Not being able to destroy it by a direct frontal assault, he then became more subtle and he joined the church. And then he began to introduce into the church all of these false doctrines that have plagued the church through the centuries. Very quickly, the church lapsed into carnality as Paul had to deal with the Corinthian church. It lapsed into worldly organization as Paul had to deal with the Galatian church. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you would so soon depart from the truth? Having begun in the spirit, are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? And Jesus dealt with much of the false doctrine that had infiltrated the church before John died. In the book of Revelation, you find Jesus rebuking the churches because they had left their first love. They had become mechanical in their worship and in their service to God. It was no longer from the heart, but it was just a organized kind of machinery. They had allowed the doctrines of the Nicolaitans to infiltrate. They had embraced the doctrines of Balaam, which was the introduction of idolatry. They had allowed that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, to uh, influence the church to spiritual uh, adultery and uh, fornication. So, It was by this 
infiltrating that the church's witness became greatly weakened. So Paul, though this woman is saying the truth, will not accept her advertising of them. These are the servants of the Most High God. Yes, indeed they were. They show us the way of salvation. Yes, indeed they did. It is interesting that even with Jesus, he would not allow the demons many times to speak. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And he would command them to be silent. The Bible asks the question, what fellowship hath light with darkness? And yet there's been that attempt to sort of combine. And, and today there is a strong movement towards ecumenism in which they are saying that we need to put aside our differences in our doctrinal beliefs in order that we might unify together. Can't do it. We cannot compromise the doctrinal purity of the church for the sake of unification. We must maintain as much as possible the doctrinal purity. So this she did many days, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her in the same hour. So when her masters saw that their hope for gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. And they said to the magistrates, these men being Jews, and as I said, there weren't many Jews in that city and probably because of anti-Semitic feelings and thus they're impressing they are Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. They are teaching us things that as a Roman citizen, we can't observe. What were they teaching? They were teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, as a Roman citizen, you had to acknowledge Caesar is Lord. The government is Lord. Look out, because we're getting close to that in the United States. They want us to acknowledge that the government is Lord. And more and more, they are seeking to impose restrictions on the church. In reality, we are required, of course, to register with the government, file articles of incorporation with the government. We don't need the government's approval to exist. We have God's approval to exist. But again, living peaceably with all men as much as life in us. We are organized and we're incorporated and, and you know, we file the reports with the government. But uh, 
this, it's this whole concept of Caesar is Lord. And uh, more and more, our freedoms are being taken from us and uh, the acknowledgement of the lordship of the government over our lives. So they're teaching us these things that customs and all that are not lawful for us to receive or to observe because we're Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded that they be beaten. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them or threw them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks, perhaps their hands and their head too, but at least their feet fast in the stocks in the inner prison. Here they are, directed by the Holy Spirit to come to Macedonia to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of peace, the gospel of love, the gospel of grace, the gospel of mercy. And yet, here they are in the inner prison, in the stocks, their backs throbbing with pain because of the beating that they had received. Enough to make you question the calling of God. To make you question whether or not God was really leading you. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Rather than being discouraged, rather than being uh, down and all, they, they were praying and they were singing praises unto God. Now, singing is a tremendous way to alter our attitudes. It's a way of praising God. It's a great way of praising God. I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. And, and, and after the victories and after the work of God, so often they would write a song to remind them of what God had done. Exodus, or in Deuteronomy 32, you have the song of Moses, glorious song of God's power, God's deliverance. He is our rock. There's no rock like our rock. And a great song of what God had done in delivering the people of Israel. When God used Deborah in the battle against Sisera, after the victory that God wrought over Sisera, uh, then she wrote a song that was then sung, a song of God's power and God's deliverance. David was constantly writing songs uh, about God, about what God had done, and about the delivering power of God. And, and David would encourage himself by singing of the Lord and singing to the Lord. Great way to buoy one's spirits, to keep your uh, focus on the Lord. How much better 
than to focus on the problem and say, oh my, aren't we miserable? Oh my, this is horrible. My, my back hurts. Oh my, you know, I, you know, it just feels so horrible. I wonder if God really loves us. I wonder why God allowed this, you know. And rather than get into that why cesspool, just sing of the Lord's grace and the Lord's goodness and the Lord's love. And as you focus on the Lord, it's amazing how that, our problems seem to diminish into nothingness. Oh, how we need to see life in the light of the Lord and the the many problems in the light of his power, not in the light of my ineptness and inabilities, but to see what God can do and to declare what God can do. And so they were singing, and the prisoners heard them The Greek language is a little forceful there. It listened attentively to them. They were listening. Probably wondering, who in the world are these guys? You know, in those conditions, singing. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. Usually they were chained to the wall. The chain would be fastened to the wall and around their wrist. And this earthquake shook these pins in the wall loose so that everyone was free and it shook the doors open. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself because he supposed that the prisoners had all fled. This jailer is an interesting character that we meet in this chapter. He's very calloused, hard-hearted. These prisoners are turned over to him, evidently suffering. Their backs are bloody. They'd had their clothes stripped off that they might be beaten, caned and their backs were rather raw, bleeding, and rather than attending at all to them, he just fastens them in the stocks and then goes to sleep. He's not concerned. But now, when the prison is shaken open by the earthquake, the men have been freed. He's ready to commit suicide because under Roman law, if prisoners have been entrusted into your keeping and they escape, you have to forfeit your life. You remember back a few chapters when the Lord delivered Peter out of prison, when Herod stretched forth his hand against the church and he had James killed. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he had Peter put in prison. And that night, the angel of the Lord came to Peter in the prison and said, you know, put your sandals on, follow me. And the doors opened of their own accord. Peter was out. And the next day, when they came to get Peter, they said, well, we found the prison was shut. The guards were all standing in their places, but Peter wasn't there. So Herod ordered the guards put to death. That was the penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape. So this fellow just figured he would save Rome a job. Uh, he'll take his own life. He'll commit suicide 
because he figured the prisoners had escaped. And so Paul called, called out to him with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And so he called for a light and he sprang in and he came trembling and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? An important question. What must you do to be saved? One time they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? What work does God want us to do? The answer to both questions was the same. Jesus said to those who wanted to know what work they had to do to do the work of God, said, believe on him whom he hath sent. This is the work of God, just to believe on Jesus Christ. To this Philippian jailer who wanted to know what he had to do to be saved, Paul answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Notice he didn't say, join our church. He didn't give him any list of rules and regulations. He didn't lay any heavy law trip on him. It was very simple. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is it possible that it is that simple? Is it possible that we have sort of complicated the issue by adding so many other requirements? Is it possible that God will save a person by their simple believing in Jesus Christ? That was Paul's answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Writing to the Romans, Paul said, for if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts, that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Again, very simple. So simple that any child can grasp it and can believe. Oh, God help us to keep the simplicity of the gospel and not to be caught up in these theological debates and nonsensical issues that they argue over, but just to hold on to the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And they spake to him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. They began to share the word of God with them. And he took them the same hour of the night, well, and he washed their wounds. Heart has changed. No longer hard and calloused, but he washed their wounds. And he was baptized, and all of his, the whole family. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and he rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. He was converted. Now, again, how God leads us, how God works and all 
God says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are beyond your finding out. And so often what we look upon as we are going through a particular experience, we look upon it as some horrible tragedy that we've been forsaken of God, that surely where is God in this situation? If God loves me, why does he allow this to happen? And, and we have all of these things that so often trouble us in our circumstances that we don't understand, circumstances that are difficult, that are sometimes painful, and, and we wonder, why do I have to go through this? Here's a case where God knows the heart of this Philippian jailer. He knows his need of salvation. And he knows what it will take to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. It'll take a couple of prisoners who, when put in the direst of circumstances, can still sing praises to the Lord. I'm sure before he went to sleep, he was rather impressed with those guys back there singing. It took an earthquake. I wonder sometimes what it takes to get people to the Lord, you know. This guy took an earthquake, which to him was a life-threatening situation. But it took pain and suffering for Paul to get them in jail. You know, to be beaten and then to be thrown in jail. I mean, that was a painful experience. And yet, God's love for this jailer, and as Paul says, what's a little suffering to be compared with the glory of heaven? And, and he talks about the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. Sometimes a little sacrifice on our parts. Sometimes God will put us through some troubling situations, but he is seeking through them perhaps to reach some friend who we're not even aware of, who's been observing our life and who sees us go through that crisis with the victory of the Lord and are convinced of the reality of the gospel as they see the way you can handle the difficult circumstances. It becomes a witness to them, convincing them of the truth of the gospel that you've proclaimed. God in his love was reaching the jailer there in Philippi. So he rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Not only him, but the whole, whole family was brought to Christ. Now, when it was day, the magistrates, the judges, sent the sergeants saying, let these men go. Why the order, we don't know. It could be that they realized that that was an injustice that was done to these Jewish men. And so ordered that they be set free, you know, had a change of heart in the night and realized that, you know, that was not really just. And so the keeper of the prison told this to Paul. He said, the magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore, depart and go in peace. I like Paul. He's a man of spirit. He said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. And they've cast us into prison. And now are they going to try and just get rid of us privately? No way. Let them come themselves and get us out of here. Now, to beat a Roman who is uncondemned was a capital crime. These judges could be put to death for that. The Roman citizens were protected by Roman law. You remember later on, and it's interesting, later on when Paul was in Jerusalem and his preaching to the Jews there on the Temple Mount sort of created a mini-riot, and the captain of the Roman guard, as they brought Paul into the safety of the Antonio Fortress, said to the soldiers as he was walking off, scourge him, find out what he said to make them so angry out there. And so as they were preparing to give Paul the beating, he said, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen who has not been charged? And the guy ran to the captain. He said, do you know that's a Roman citizen? He wheeled around and came to Paul and he said, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes, sir. He said, I, I had to purchase my citizenship. Cost me, how much do you have to pay? Paul said, I was free born. Well, needless to say, they didn't beat him. Now, in this case, you wonder, why didn't Paul claim his Roman citizenship here? I don't know. Why would he do it one place and not another? I don't know. Except that had he said that, he probably wouldn't have been thrown in jail and the jailer wouldn't have been saved. So God has his ways of working to bring his truth and his love to those whose hearts he knows will be open to receive. So the sergeant came back to the magistrates and told them the words of Paul. And when they heard that, they were Romans. They, they were in fear. And so they came personally and they begged them and brought them out of the prison and asked them, desired them to depart out of the city. Hey, would you guys please leave? Interesting, isn't it? Uh, that's the same request that the people of Gadara made of Jesus after he had cast the legion of demons out of that man. And the swine went down and were drowned in the sea. They came and they... And the same word is used. They desired that Jesus would depart from their coast. Now, it's interesting. It's the same issue here. It is this girl who has been delivered from demon possession that has created this whole ruckus to begin with. It's interesting that there are people who would rather live in company with devils than in company with God. Interesting. And times have not changed people that much.
There are many people today who are much more comfortable living with devils than they are living with people of God. We had a young girl who was into witchcraft, heavy into drugs, who received Jesus Christ. God set her free from the drugs, and of course she got out of her witchcraft. And Her father became so upset and so angry. He said, I would rather she be back on drugs than into this Jesus bit. He said, I at least understood her then. I don't understand her now. More comfortable living in company with Satan than in company with God. And thus they begged them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison. They didn't immediately leave the city. They entered again to the house of Lydia And when they had seen the brethren and comforted them, then they departed. Now, Luke probably stayed. And the reason why I say that is that, again, as Luke is recounting the story, he uses the word they again. Up until now, he's been talking about us and we and so forth. But now he begins to employ the word they, and he continues to employ the word they until you get to chapter 20 when Paul returns to Philippi, and again he uses the we and the us. So as they left, they probably left Luke to minister there in Philippi because a strong church developed in the city of Philippi, and later Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. Now, if you want to get an A-plus on the lesson, read the letter to the Philippians this week, and you'll get extra credit. And uh, it'll give you a little better background now into the church that was established in Philippi uh, as the result of Paul's ministry and probably Luke's continued ministry after Paul left. And uh, so uh, you'll notice that the uh, personal pronouns are not used uh, again by Luke until he gets to chapter 20, and then once more he begins to speak about we and us and all. So just an interesting sidelight. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Paul has begun the missionary outreach in Europe by divine calling of God through a vision. He has come to Philippi where he began his European mission. He left Philippi under strained circumstances, but leaving a pocket of believers there that he later wrote one of his epistles to. And so leaving Philippi, chapter 17 says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now this sounds like a nice little stroll, but Amphipolis was 33 miles from Philippi, 
Apollonia was another 30 miles from Amphipolis and another 37 miles beyond that was another major city known as Thessalonica. It was on the main Roman highway. And so uh, Paul liked to come to the cultural centers and the uh, centers of commerce because there were so many people coming and going. It gave opportunity for a more rapid spread of the gospel. And there he came to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul had as a custom when he would come to an area, a new city, to take the gospel to the Jew first and then from there to the Greeks. So he would always go to the synagogues and there begin his ministry in a area. And so according to his custom, uh, he came to the synagogue of the Jews. It says, after his manner was... It was just a routine with Paul. He went into them, and for three Sabbath days, he reasoned to them out of the scriptures. As we were sharing this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a very reasonable thing. Salvation is a very reasonable offer that God has made to us. It makes sense to commit your life to God. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you'll present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It makes sense. God has a much better plan for your life than anything you could devise yourself. It makes sense to commit your life, to present your body unto God as a living sacrifice. Come now, God said, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, you can be as white as snow. The gospel is reasonable. In fact, I believe that the rejection of the gospel is unreasonable. I think that the only thing you can attribute to the fact that some people reject the gospel is that Satan has so deceived them and blinded their eyes and is holding them captive so that they cannot reason. And it is interesting how unreasonable is the stance that people take who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say that because when you look at these people and then you see the things they do believe, you really know that, you know, there's something wrong. They're not using the full capacities of their mental uh, faculties and uh, the stuff that they believe, once rejecting the truth. As Paul, writing to the Thessalonians later, talked about how that 
because they did not have the love of the truth in their hearts. They became deluded. They uh, believed a lie rather than the truth. And that is the case for those who reject the truth. So he reasoned out of the scriptures. The scriptures, of course, would be the Old Testament. And he opened, that is, expounded. Uh, This word is used once more in the New Testament. It is used again by Luke in his gospel, where Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples, and he opened to them the scriptures. Uh, Same word. Paul opening, expounding the scriptures, and alleging that the Messiah must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Messiah. So he showed them from their scriptures how that in their scriptures it was declared that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. He no doubt shared with them Isaiah 53, shared with them Psalm 22, shared with them Psalm 16, where the promise of the Father was, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. And Peter testified, God did not leave his soul in hell. So opening and alleging that the Messiah must needs have suffered and risen again. Now, they knew these prophecies concerning the suffering of the Messiah. They also, though, knew the prophecies of the Messiah establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. And they could not reconcile the prophecies that dealt with the reign of the Messiah, the glorious eternal reign. They could not reconcile that in their minds with the the prophecies of the Messiah's suffering and rising from the dead. So many of the rabbis taught that there would be two messiahs, one the suffering messiah and the other the reigning messiah. Some think that when John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus when he was in prison, and and John asked, are you the one we're looking for or shall we look for someone else? that John was referring to the theory of the two messiahs. Are you the one that's going to suffer or are you the one that's going to establish the kingdom? Shall I look? Shall we look for another one to establish the kingdom? Uh, it is true that it is difficult to reconcile the prophecies because of the vast divergence between the suffering and the glorious reign. But it is easily answered in the two comings of the one Messiah, not two Messiahs, the two comings of the one Messiah. When Prime Minister Begin was still alive, I had the opportunity on a couple of occasions of sitting with him and talking with him. I found him a very charming person, very committed to the Bible. And I said to him, you know, there really isn't that much difference in our beliefs. 
For you believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's the very God I believe in. The one who created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. And you believe that the Messiah is coming soon. And I believe that the Messiah is coming soon. So the basic difference is that when the Messiah comes, you will say, that's the Messiah. And I will say, that's the Messiah. (laughs) But I'll say, this is the second time he's been here. (laughs) Paul reasoned with them out of the scriptures, showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead and that this Jesus who I'm sharing with you, is the Messiah. Now some of them believed, and they consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. Many people believed as Paul showed them out of the scriptures concerning the Messiah. But the Jews which believed not Moved with jealousy, they took unto them certain lewd fellows, and uh, the Greek is fellows from the street. Uh, They're the gang type uh, that hang out on the street corners. They were of the baser sort. And they gathered a company, and they set all the city on an uproar. And they assaulted the house of Jason, And they sought to bring out the apostles to the people. And when they did not find them, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These men have turned the world upside down and are come hither also. I love the accusation. Only it's not right. They weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning the world right side up. The world is upside down. It needs turning right side up. And so these men who are turning the world right side up (laughs) have come hither. However, that was not the accusation. Whom Jason has received, his fellow is harboring them. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Now, As we said uh, earlier in our studies of Acts, there was the deifying of the Roman emperor and uh, loyal citizens to Rome were required to say, Caesar is Lord. Or the government rules. The government rules over us. The government is Lord over our lives. Now, Christians would refuse to say that Jesus, I mean, that Caesar is Lord. They would say that Jesus is Lord. And this was the thing that uh, was the testing in those days uh, of a Christian. Uh, Thousands, hundreds of thousands of them were executed by the Roman government because they were looked upon as insurrectionists against Rome for their refusal to say Caesar is Lord. And when 
they would be brought for execution, whether it be to be stretched on the racks, burned at the stake, or crucified, they would be given an opportunity to recant. If, when they were standing there ready to be placed on the cross, the executioner would say, say Caesar is Lord. And they could get out of the execution by just saying Caesar is Lord. Charges dismissed. But hundreds of thousands of them refused to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar and went to the crosses, were burned at the stake, were stretched on the racks, were beheaded, and Fox's Book of Martyrs is a must-read to find the courage and the commitment of the early church. When you read that, you'll think, man, I wonder if I'm even a Christian. (laughs) The commitment and the courage that these people had. And so this was the accusation. The ones that are turning the world upside down, they've come here and they're, they're teaching us something that's contrary for us as Roman citizens, that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. It was, uh, it was troubling. And when they had taken security of Jason, that is, he had to uh, post bail, uh, and of the others, they let them go. So they post bail to ensure that they would come for trial. Now, we have here a very brief account of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. But in that brief time that he was there, there was a strong church established. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, and notice Paul's letter to this church that was established here in Acts 17. He wrote back to them when he had arrived in Corinth. And it was not really long after he had left. And so he writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your works of faith, your labor of love, and the patience of the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And because, and you became followers of us and the Lord, having received the word with much affliction, with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. The church of Thessalonica though Paul was only there a short time, was firmly established. Uh, It is thought that uh, maybe Luke remained there to minister to them for a while. But the reputation of this church began to spread abroad throughout the area of Macedonia and Achaia so that from you sounded out the word of the Lord 
not only in Macedonia, but in Achaia, and also in every place where your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from your idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. For yourselves, brethren, know of our entrance into you that it was not in vain, not even after that we suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, but we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. And, and so he gives this little personal note to the Thessalonians. And it would be beneficial to you as just extracurricular uh, to read. Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians in conjunction with the 17th chapter here. Uh, it will uh, help you to grasp and understand what was accomplished in this very short ministry there. You say, oh, both epistles? Well, next week Paul goes to Corinth. And uh, <laughs> his letters to the Corinthians were quite a bit longer. These are short little letters short chapters and just a few chapters, but uh, if you want extra special credit, then read the Corinthian epistles this week along with your reading of Acts, and it gives you great background uh, for uh, understanding Paul's ministry in these places. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, now, Thessalonica was main, main highway. It was the center of a lot of traffic. Berea was a little hick town off the beaten track. And so uh, it was uh, sort of a no reputation kind of a city. There's an interesting uh, letter from the Emperor Kikoro to a fellow by the name of Pilo who was an extremely poor administrator. And, and his letter, he rebukes this fellow. And he tells him what a mess he made and left and after he tried to govern there in Thessalonica and how he sort of fled uh, to uh, Berea, you know, but even there he was a mess. And, and it's quite a letter, but it, it's interesting that uh, he, he makes mention of Berea as, you know, the offbeat place. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on searching the scriptures. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 16 through 17 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. 
And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you for your love and for your goodness and for the work of your Holy Spirit, even when we're not aware of it. Thank you, Lord, that we can just commit our ways to you, knowing that you will direct our paths. And Lord, we pray that you will help us, that when things are tough, when things seem to be going against us, when the days look very dark and grim, that you'll give us a song of praise and love and thanksgiving, that we might not focus on the difficulties of our circumstances, but we'll focus on the greatness of your love and of your goodness and of your mercy towards us. Lord, bless your people. Fill them, Lord, with your love and with your spirit. And let us be instruments, Lord, through which you can do your work and accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The 1960s became one of the most colorful periods in American history. The counterculture was dropping out and turning on. The Summer of Love was the stage for many dramas of change, and the most popular musical group in the world was singing All You Need Is Love. But one man in Southern California was reaching out with the answer, and the truth began to set people free. Author and pastor Chuck Smith began to share the love of Jesus Christ with a generation that was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now some 40 years later, the gospel of love is still changing lives. In his book simply titled, Love, The More Excellent Way, Pastor Chuck Smith expounds upon the love that can change your life now and forever. For more information on how to obtain your copy, visit a bookstore nearest you or call 1-800-272-WORD or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org. That's thewordfortoday.org.